Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. This week we'll be talking about a book called The Knife of Never Letting Go and the movie that was based on it that was called Chaos Walking. Spoiler alert, I feel like they made a good call in changing the name, but maybe they didn't make some other good calls. We'll get into it in a minute, I'm sure. But first, real fast, just want to remind you that you can email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. You can find show notes, information on how you can support us via Patreon or reviewing us or buying us coffee or liking and sharing and all of that wonderful stuff at kmmamedia.com slash pagesandpopcornpodcast. And also, real quick, we are doing a summer watch thing where we talked about the book Shadow and Bone, and now every week we watch an episode of Shadow and Bone and we talk about it live, and then I pop that into the feeds on Wednesdays, and if you would like to come and tell us your thoughts and opinions on Tuesday nights, we would love to hear your thoughts and opinions, and we still have our pop-in event this month coming up. It's going to be on the 26th of the month, because this is July when this episode's going to come out, so <clears throat> it is July. All that information can be found on our website and also on our social media, which is Pages and Popcorn Podcast on Facebook, Pages and Popcorn Podcast on Twitter, KMMA underscore media on Instagram. Those are all the places. This month's theme for our pop-in event is going to be YA, our favorite YA and our least favorite YA from the last little while, because YA is not a very old genre, which is also something that we're going to talk about is the the creation of the YA genre and then some awesome YA and some not so awesome YA. So uh, I love the fact that I just decided that just now live and in person and poor Jennifer is sitting over there going, oh, is that what I'm doing? But, bit, you know, but I'm excited about it. I have stuff to say. I know. I, I know. I know. Because <laughs> I've heard you say some of it before. I was like, this will be an easy topic. Uh, plus, we've got a couple of weeks to prepare. I thought that was more of, I know. I know you. You have goddamn opinions on everything. Well, there's that. Uh, so, and if you would like to recommend a topic, because what we do with those pop-ins sometimes is we record them and then let them be a supplemental episode down the road. So if you're unable to attend the pop-in event, but you're curious about our thoughts, uh, don't worry, those will be showing up in your feed at some point down the road a little bit. But if you have an idea for a topic that's something you'd like to hear us talk about or something you'd like to talk about with us, again, reach out pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com. And that is it for my intro. Let's get into it. The Knife of Never Letting Go is a young adult science fiction novel written by British-American author Patrick Ness. It was published by Walker Books in 2008. It is the first in the Chaos Walking series, a trilogy. Okay, here is 
our book recap. Todd Hewitt is the only boy left in Prentice Town, a small settlement on New World, an alien planet only recently colonized by humanity. Todd is within days of his 13th birthday, the age in Prentice Town in which all boys become men, although he doesn't really know what that means or what is going to be expected of him. Todd has been told that all women and nearly all the men on New World were killed in a war with the Speckle that occurred around the time of his birth. The Speckle are New World's native inhabitants who are blamed for the release of the germ that caused the majority of the deaths and was particularly fatal to women. The inhabitants of Prentice Town claim that every Speckle was wiped out during the war and Todd has no reason to believe otherwise. As a side effect of the virus the Speckle unleashed upon them, the remaining men in Prentice Town can hear each other's and animals' thoughts described as the ever-present cascade of noise. What this means is we have talking dogs, talking sheep, talking horses, talking crocodiles, talking birds. And Todd himself keeps up a very interesting running monologue commentary about what's going on. The men of Prentice Town make up the last surviving settlement of New World, at least according to Mayor Prentice after whom the town is obviously named. At the beginning of the book, Todd and his talking dog, Menchi, discover a lone patch of silence, a hole in the noise, if you will, in a local swamp. Bewildered, Todd and Menchi make their way back to town. When Todd explains the silence to Ben and Killian, his adoptive parents, his noise accidentally projects the discovery to the entire town. Ben and Killian suddenly reveal that they have been planning Todd's escape from Prentice Town for his entire life. The two men immediately force him to leave Prentice Town with a satchel of supplies and, of course, Menchie to accompany him. Todd unwillingly obeys. Killian fights off Davy Prentice, the mayor's son, and other men from the town who have arrived, you know, alerted by the noise from Todd's head. And Ben gives Todd his own hunting knife and Todd's deceased mother's diary and sends him on his way. Todd escapes into the swamp with Manchie and discovers a girl who lacks noise. She's the first girl Todd has ever seen, except in videos and photographs. The girl says nothing. Todd, Manchie, and the girl are suddenly attacked by the town preacher, Aaron, who has recently been provoking Todd in physical and mental fights. Todd and Manchie force him into the swamp's lake where he's attacked by a crocodile. Phew, I'm sure he's dead and will never show up again. The girl silently leads Todd through the swamp to her scout ship where her parents' bodies lie dead. She has crash-landed in New World. Todd realizes this. Oh my God, it's a spaceship! With aid from the map inside Todd's mother's diary, the three begin traveling together towards Far Branch, a settlement marked on the map. Todd hopes that the settlement still exists, and then if so, it can protect them from Prentice Town. Todd realizes as they walk that he, being infected with the germ, might transmit that germ to the girl and kill her. She hears this in his noise and flees, but he pursues hers along with Manchi. And then they both encounter Aaron, because he's back, and the Prentice Town men who have been tracking them. Oh no, there's a bridge. The girl manages to save them by lighting the bridge on fire once Todd, Manchi, and herself are safely across. And the bridge, you know, blooms and falls down. And okay, I'm sure that's the end of Aaron and all those Prentice men. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. After this incident, by the way, she works up the courage to speak and finally tells Todd that her name is Viola. Todd and Viola are found by a woman named Hildy in the nearest town, Farbranch. She tells Todd that the noise germ is in fact not fatal to women, but just does not affect them at all. None of the women have noise. She takes the three to her settlement. Todd also meets Matthew, a former 
apprentice man and almost get something from his noise about the past, but no. At nightfall, an army of men from Prentice Town arrives and burns down the town, killing everybody who will not join them. Todd, Viola, and Manchi escape and flee to Haven, which is the rumored to have been the first settlement and also maybe have a cure for noise. They also hope to find a transmitter tower in order to contact Viola's people who are a second wave of planetary settlers in order to warn them about the germ slash noise. After a few days on the road, Davy Prentice finds them. Viola manages to shock Davy. Todd moves to kill him, but finds himself unable to kill. Instead, Todd ties Davy up before heading off to Haven with Viola. During the trip, Todd, Viola, and Manchi find a live spackle. Todd is shocked, believing that all the spackle had been killed in the war. Worried at the attack, frustrated with his cowardness of keeping Davy alive and also unable to fight off Aaron before, Todd fights and kills the spackle and faces instant regret. Aaron appears, stabbing Todd and kidnapping Viola. Again, Todd is unable to fight him off and kill him. Todd wakes, hurriedly pursues Aaron, but as his stab wounds become infected, he starts to kind of hallucinate and weaken. Todd finds Viola and Aaron and uses Banshee as a distraction while he rescues her. Todd and Viola manage to get away, but oh, they are compelled to leave Manchi behind with Aaron and Aaron kills the dog in the horrible brutal awful way and i sob and then the pair flee on a boat and todd passes out from his wounds todd wakes up under the care of a doctor in yet another settlement going for a walk he encounters ben who's hiding in the outskirts of town he reveals that killian did die in todd's escape from prentice town the people of the new town label ben as a murderer due to his prentice town origins however ben and todd convince the townsfolk to help them fight the approaching prentice town army as the army approaches ben todd and viola use the confusion to escape after gaining some distance, Ben explains some of the truth to Todd and Viola. The noise germ is actually not a germ. It's a natural contagion of the planet, not an attack by the spackle. The men of Prentice Town, driven mad by the noise and resenting the women's ability to remain silent, you know, cloaked and able to have secrets, led by Aaron and the mayor, well, those men, they killed all the women and were subsequently banished from the rest of New World for their crimes. The boys were supposed to learn a version of the truth from a mayor on their 13th birthday. This is why Todd had been sent away prior to his becoming a man. He could only be accepted by the rest of the world if his thoughts were widely innocent. Also, it's interesting to note that a year here is longer than 12 months. So Viola's kind of like, I think you're kind of over 13. And Todd's like, nope, 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 super not, super not, super not a man yet. And Viola's like, I kind of think you are. And it's a little ambiguous. There's also two moons. It's kind of cool. Whatever. Ben, Todd, and Viola continue towards Haven, but Davy Prentice finds them again. Ben distracts him to allow Todd and Viola to run. But then the two are cornered by the deranged Aaron again in a cavern near a waterfall very 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 close to haven todd suddenly realizes through reading aaron's noise that the boys of prentice town become men by killing someone upon the turning the age of 13. aaron thinks of himself as a symbolic sacrifice for the last boy in prentice town and he tries to provoke todd into killing him attempting to stop aaron from succeeding viola grabs the knife and stabs aaron in the neck he falls into the waterfall and dies we hope davy again intercepts the pair as they get to as they do their final trek to haven they're so close but no denied he shoots viola todd subdues davy still doesn't kill and then he escapes and he's carrying a dying viola to haven to get help however the town is quiet because mayor prentice is already there he tells him that haven surrendered without a fight the mayor's declared himself president of new world through his despair todd realizes he can't even hear the mayor's noise 
And with no other choice, Todd surrenders to the mayor, Viola bleeding out in his arms. The end. Obviously, to be continued in another book. <clears throat> Here's the movie. Chaos Walking is a 2021 American dystopian action film directed by Doug Lyman from a screenplay by Patrick Ness and Christopher Ford. And it stars Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland. And this is the recap. Title note tells us that it's 2257 AD. The colonists of the planet New World, all men have been afflicted with a condition called the noise who causes everyone to see and hear each other's thoughts. The colonists were involved in a bitter civil war with the native humanoid species known as the Spackalo War that obviously killed all of the female colonists while half the men survived. Todd Hewitt lives in Prentice Town with his adopted fathers, Ben and Killian. Other residents include the preacher Aaron, the town's mayor, David Prentice, and his son, Davy. Prentice, the mayor, has learned to control his noise, making his thoughts difficult to see and hear, and also the animal do not talk. Okay, we diverge from the book very quickly though with a spaceship. Upon entry into the planet's atmosphere, the noise starts and some kind of mechanical failure as well. I'm not exactly sure. But anyways, the spaceship crashes and this is how we meet Viola. On the planet, no one seems to have noticed the crash. But soon after, Todd is working and he spots someone stealing and he chases the thief only to come upon the crash site. Todd returns to the town and tries to keep quiet, but the other men hear and see his thoughts about the crashed ship. So Todd goes and tells the mayor because he really wants the mayor's approval because in this version, he kind of likes the mayor and the mayor likes him. Anyways, everybody heads off to investigate the crash scene and to sabotage some parts from the ship, but they find no survivors. While Todd is alone, he meets Viola, the crash's only survivor. He is shocked to see her. She's a girl. He's never seen a girl before. She's pretty. She has yellow hair. Blah, blah, blah. The men from Prentice Town capture Viola, and she is brought to the mayor's house, where she's questioned about where she came from. Prentice explains to her that where, what the noise is and what has happened to her, their planet. When he leaves to go speak to the men, Davy is charged with keeping an eye on her. Davy is a dork, and he unwittingly toys with one of Violet, Viola's gadgets, which causes it to shoot and sparkle in a little mini explosion, and in the hubbub, Violet escapes. Well, she kind of hides under the floor, so she can listen to what's happening, which is very smart of her, and this is how she overhears Prentice talking about letting Viola contact her colony's mothership, intercepting their landing, killing them all while being in their cyber sleep, and then scavenging the ship. Viola then runs away and hides in Todd's family's barn when Todd eventually finds her. Todd tries to hide Viola when one of the apprentice men arrives looking for her. Ben tells Todd about another settlement called Far Branch and says Viola will be safe there. Viola escapes on a motorcycle while Todd chases after her on a horse. Prentice and the men arrive at the farm demanding Viola back as they believe that she's a spy or something. Davy kills Gillian and Ben is forced to join the men. Meanwhile, Todd catches up to Viola and the two begin a journey to Far Branch. Real quick note, they have to jump off a cliff. Her motorbike is destroyed and his horse is lame or becomes lame because it breaks its leg and Todd has to kill it and mercy. Oh, this is the point where the dog joins them. Hooray, no more horse, but we have our non-talking dog. During the journey, Viola reveals to Todd that she is from a large colony ship carrying over 4,000 passengers and her parents die during the 64 year long journey from earth to the new world. Todd reveals that he never knew his real parents. Then they encounter a speckle. Uh, first they're trying to go around it, then they're attacked, and Todd tries to kill it, kind of in self-defense, but then Viola stops him for some reason. It doesn't appear like it's dangerous. Maybe it's also missing half an arm. I don't know. It's weird. Also, along the journey, Todd kills a crocodile thing while naked, and it is something we will talk about. 
Anyways, they arrive at Far Branch, which is inhabited by men, women, and children, some of whom are displeased with Todd's presence because he is from Prentice Town. Todd discovers his mother's diary, but Vyboyla reads it to him because he cannot read. The diary reveals that the women were not killed by the native aliens, but rather by Prentice and the men of Prentice Town. The men cannot stand not knowing what are the thoughts of the women. This drove them crazy. Angered, Todd realizes that everything he's been told was a lie. Prentice and his men arrive again, demanding Viola. Ben tries to get Todd to surrender Viola, but Todd is angry with him for lying. Ben uses astral projection, like thought projection, to create an image of Viola in order to distract Prentice and his men while Todd and Viola actually escape. Aaron chases them. They come upon a boat. As they escape, Aaron drowns Manchi, further enraging Todd. It's quick and not nearly as violent as the book. We'll talk about it. The next day, Viola and Todd arrive at the ruins of the first colony ship. They enter it and try to send a signal to the colony ship, but the antenna is damaged, of course. So Todd attempts to repair it, of course. When Prentice and his men arrive, of course, Todd surrenders himself as Prentice is holding Ben hostage. The other men spread out and are not around for the rest of this. It's basically just the mayor and Todd. Anyways, oh, and Aaron, let's not forget Aaron. Aaron goes inside to kill Viola and he's like yelling at her and whatever and she freaking burns him alive with a gadget. So no more Aaron, one hopes. Prentice shoots Ben, even though Todd has surrendered. Todd goes to him. He holds Ben and unknown to Prentice. Ben gives him a knife. So then Todd engages with Prentice, but he can't, he can't quite do it. He uses illusions of himself to distract Todd. And he also shoots Todd in the shoulder. And then Todd tries to hide, but he can't because, you know, noise. And then as he's about to hit him, Todd uses illusions of his mother and every other woman who's calling Prentice a coward. And somehow this works and it distracts Prentice enough that Viola can climb out of the wreckage and attack Prentice, and he seemingly falls to his death. Seemingly, the colony ship appears in the sky. Davy and the remaining Prentice Town men have been just like loitering nearby. Uh, I guess they take off. Todd wakes up in the colony ship's medical room. He's fully healed. Viola is going to take him to meet the other colonists. The end. <sighs> yeah, very very different movie than the book. Yeah, it starts off similarly. I mean, no, no, it doesn't it actually. Doesn't at all. I take I that like, back. Were you high? It starts high? off with yeah. the same premise, right? Town, reading your thoughts, the noise. So basically, the world is the same and the plot is completely different. Yeah. And the characters are different. Okay. Yeah. So should we start with the book? Yes. Well, okay. So let's start with some themes, right? Because they, they, they kind of both had themes. They're slightly different and they dealt with them differently. But we have the theme, the main theme of well not the main thing but a theme a pretty important theme in the book which is privacy which is interesting because there is no privacy obviously all of your thoughts are just spilling out at all times and once you get close to another person you can just basically hear everything that they're saying in their head their thinking their interior monologue all i could think of was like <laughs> it's bad that the mayor burnt all the books i totally get that that's a bad thing and i actually you know and his reasons were bad but also, could you imagine how loud a library would be? <laughs> because everybody would be reading their own book and then having their own thought process and then having their own imaginations about the book, like butting up against everybody else's reading. But oh my goodness, it just sounds like a cacophony. Bad enough, the uh, description of the bar with the music and everybody. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, this does not sound like a good place to be. I did like the visual in the book of the noise. You know, you have all these different thoughts yeah. on top of one of each other. And I can imagine with your vision issues, that must have looked even worse than it would to me. But 
it's effective at saying this is what noise is like. And it seems to me a very good representation of what people are. You know, they we think in noise. Yeah, it's interesting. So it it had a couple little tiny bits early on which is like a, a swamp noise he's talking about there's bird noise and so the font is different and i when i got there i was like oh god is there going to be a lot of this and i flipped through and there's really not a lot of it but there is one page and i think i might even just take a picture of this page and put it on our social media because it's interesting and it is fast and so then as i got to that point this very chaotically busy page full of you know as you said noise i thought how would they do this as an audio book, did you listen to this book or read this book? I listened to the audio, but I did have like a visual in front of me. So I, I saw some of what the fonts were. Um, and it is, it's like a bunch of overlapping voices. And so you have different cadences, you have different pitches and it comes off effectively as, wow, that, that would be impossible to have to live with. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it makes sense why people would, would go mad, you know? Yeah, some of the thoughts that people have are really dark i mean we all have dark thoughts we can't always control our thoughts it's kind of what makes us civilized right is the ability to be like oh that was a bad thought i won't act on that impulse but we all have dark and bad impulses and i think that's an important thing to note and it's a great theme in this book is that you can you're not necessarily your first instinct you know you can Mm -hmm. have these thoughts and and that's the whole point is that you learn to control them and go oh yeah that's a bad thought i'm not going to act on it yeah. But I, I especially feel this, like if you have an attraction and you can't help it, you know, at least as a civilized person, you can go, oh, yeah, I'm not going to act on that because that would be bad. But you can still have, you know, whatever your instinctual self is. The issue of privacy is such a big one and it's terrifying not to have it. Yeah. Very unsettling. And I thought that the book did a really good job of, of showcasing that and, and also, but also like finding the humor in it because the book opens up with us basically saying the first thing you learn about, you know, dogs when they start to talk is that they don't have anything interesting to say. And this dog is like mostly at the beginning, it's like Todd, 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 poop, Todd, Todd, I gotta go poop, Todd, Todd. Todd, Todd. <laughs> oh my god and if you actually heard like the dog after you swat it because you know it's behavior modification it's not the best but you know animals oh god and you can't just like normally you'd be able to tell your dog in this world no don't do that you don't have to actually swat them yeah I, so there's a few things with that i feel like because todd has been raised in this hyper masculine world this very frontier very uh, patriarchal puritan and very toxic masculinity. Let's be clear. This is not, you know, real masculinity that violence is the answer. So the dog's annoying you. So you kick the dog or you hit the dog or you swat the dog. And it's so sad. The dog's like, every time that happens, the dog has the question marks Todd with the question mark, you know, ouch, yeah. Todd, you know, like, oh man, like the dog doesn't get it. Like, why'd you hurt me? Why'd you hit me? And even though he could, the dog can hear his thoughts too, but the dog obviously can't understand them because Todd's thoughts are more complex than the dogs so it's it's uncomfortable but also it's there to show I think that um, indoctrination of violence and then as the novel continues Todd doesn't hit the dog nearly as much and he's more playful with it and then he actually starts to love the dog and so when the dog dies it is way more tragic because we've watched this relationship develop we've oh and the death do we want, let's leave off to talk about the death because that's a big one to talk about. 
sure. Okay, we'll we'll right. we'll just punish you multiple times in this episode by by referencing and then talking about the saddest moment in. I just thought it was hilarious that the sheep were just like sheep, sheep. Oh yeah, I, sheep. Like I, you, you don't think about grass. You don't think about. Nope. Oh, is that a wolf? Most of the animals are thinking about like their food, especially the predators. But the the animals that aren't predators aren't thinking about food. They're thinking about each other and their cohesion. Sheep are thinking about sheep. The the here pack, which is not in the I didn't even reference in my recap, but at some point, um, Todd and Viola come into like this. It's a woolly mammoth herd, and they're just like, we're here, we're here, we're here. And it's beautiful and comforting and sweet, you know, lovely and and hypnotic. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, so I think that that's there to show us the difference between the predators and the prey. There's also, um, sheep are just they're they're prey but they're just cheap 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 what it felt like a little bit to me is if he is living in a world of extreme metal screaming and then all of a sudden he's introduced to some very chill classical music <laughs> yeah which you know noise they call it noise they definitely call it noise for a reason you know um okay so that was a major theme privacy or the lack thereof and especially like even when you dream you know your dreams anybody nearby can see your dreams and we can't control our dreams i i am kind of in awe of how killian and uh ben were able to survive as a couple they're so different yeah it, yeah and okay so I'm like, oh, he has two gay dads and it's not even a thing. And then I thought, well, I wonder if other men have like partnered up in, in maybe a non-romantic way, but maybe a just, you know, we need to combine our farms and blah, blah, blah sort of way, because when there's no women, then, you know, and then you could end up with people at the power structure and someone's going to do this, that, whatever. Anyways, but Ben and Killian were definitely not a hetero sexual pairing of people they were definitely a gay couple in this book and it was really nice to see that a they were there and b it didn't matter for all of this toxic masculinity happening in this town they were just there i kind of wonder if prison rules apply you know in prison it you know there's a lot of toxic masculinity because it's prison but sometimes you just do what you have to do to get by for the day and so there's not a lot of judgment about that it's just like you know we're all horny there's only us and you just kind of let that go. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know I, if they're gay for the stay kind of situation. I because totally, no, I feel like Ben and, cause they were gay before all the women died. No, Ben yeah, and Killian were, felt like a couple, but yeah. And, and yeah, uh, they didn't show Killian's death in the book, but in the movie, you know, there's Ben and it, it's, so tragic right holding the person that you love and and having them die and and stuff so one of the things i actually really liked about how the memory was portrayed is that a lot of it is revisionist what we remember and what is reality are totally different mm -hmm. and so that comes off very well in this book yeah especially with all the men thinking about the women so as, as Todd is, as our world building starts, he's going through the town and we're getting, you know, delu all this deluge of this noise and all the men and he's talking about like, there's there's videos and whatever. And there's like, he sees what these men wanna do with women and it's very pornographic and it's a lot, you know, all of this stuff, which makes a certain amount of sense. These men don't have women, they're horny, blah, blah, blah. I get it, get it, get it. But then there's this big twist later that the men killed the women. And I thought it's fascinating to me that nobody was ever thinking about that ever in a way that Todd could have picked up on 
earlier because either that's a plot hole, which could be, or that's that's intentional to show us that these men have so divorced themselves, like you said, with revisionist history, that they're not thinking about that. They've decided to believe this lie that the spackle came and killed everybody. They've decided that so much because if you say a lie enough times, it becomes the truth, at least to you. Right. And when they're thinking about women, they're only thinking about what they miss and the good parts and like what they would want to do with the woman and all this stuff. And they're made these mental blocks to keep out these bad memories so what do you think to me it feels like there was um i i like the idea of having first person present narration because you were there with the character at the same time the author does cheat this quite often so this feels like a cheat to me how so so one thing is you know he'll have todd have a revelation but no i can't think that well no you are thinking it that's the whole point of having this noise you can't hide you can't hide from any of this no matter how many mental blocks you have as a whole town, not everybody would be able to block it all the time. And, you know, maybe that is why some of them killed themselves or were killed because that is kind of an issue. Maybe that, you know, the people who would not block out the murder were killed. Uh, but it just seems that something of that extreme history would have seeped through. It does. And we're not told that because it, it would interfere with the plot. So there's some really smart, interesting, very new techniques that Ness is trying to do, but that also inhibits other things that he wanted to do. So you can't have everything when you're trying to write a book like this. You can't have hidden revelations when a whole town can know exactly what everyone's thinking at, all the time. So you're, you're putting it more in a plot hole camp. Yeah. Okay. So, which is fine. You know, books have plot holes. I loved the first person narration extremely i loved his voice i loved no sometimes we kind of figured stuff out before him but then we got to actually watch him do it and i feel like it was there to make it so that he kind of knew but he just wasn't acknowledging it oh don't think about that well if there's a that there you've already thought of it you know what you're choosing to not think about so it's but yeah. there's a difference between knowing something under the surface and like purposely not thinking about it and then actually thinking and dwelling and inhabiting that moment or that memory or that knowledge or that truth so i i bought it i liked it a lot and i i liked there's so many spelling errors in this book and normally that would drive me up a wall but it was because it was so authentically todd's voice that i i loved it it was such a good shtick i his, his grammar's bad his spelling's bad he uh he keeps it kind of felt to me like i was in a mark twain novel where i was hearing huckleberry finn who doesn't have that high education who does have a very colloquial way of speaking right and he goes you know he's often saying well f this or the effing blah 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 and then you know it kind of almost in parentheses like i didn't say f you know because it, it's very cute and it's very it's charming I freaking loved it. I loved the tone of this of the book uh, in that in that sense. Yeah. And so I I really enjoyed that as well. And I, it does speak to like the layers that we have in our own brain. You know, there's the stuff that we kind of wait a second that didn't feel right when you're trying to figure out like a situation, and then really knowing no, this was wrong. This was messed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely. So I I do like that. You know, he's he's technically fourteen. <laughs> Or or older, because if there's two extra months at every year, then that's 13 years. Uh, that's 26 extra months. That's well, supposedly 13 months, but then we don't know how true that is either. Yeah, exactly. Who? I mean, 
it's arbitrary, right? Especially when you've got like these two moons, and I don't think that they made a big in the book. There's two moons. It was just a quick mention. It was it was almost not there, it, but it was cool. In the book, there's two moons, but we but so we get, we obviously have nighttime and we have day. So there's some calendaring aspect in the movie, though. It's sunny all the time until it's raining, then it's cloudy. But like it's it's very clear that with with two suns, I mean, what would your calendar even look like? And that's just a fun thing to think about, you know? Um, I loved, I love those little tiny things that remind us that we're on an alien world. It's, it's very cool. It's subtle, but work, it worked. I do like that the crocodile had tentacles. It's not an earth crocodile, it's an alien species. They call it a crocodile because to me, again, this is kind of smart filmmaking of we don't have terms for these species. We don't have to come up with a name for them every single time there's a new thing. It's just, this is sort of an earth equivalent, but it's what this species is. What I liked is in that, in the, in the realm of naming conventions, since you're on it, is the idea of alien. And they, they didn't talk about this too much in the book, but they did in the movie. And I thought it was a very clever thing. He was like, oh, those spackles, they're the aliens. And she's like, well, no, they're the natives. We're the new people here. We're the alien. He's like, no, they're not like me. They're the alien. And alien does mean both different from me and from a different place from me. So they're technically both right, but it's a, it's an interesting concept. So I couldn't help but feel like uh, the author was having a lot of do-it-yourself trauma because he named him the Spinkle. And he's like, How, are you having trouble sprinkling something? I just could not get that out of my head that you know, as a real life event, the author is just struggling with. Are you not familiar with Spinkle? I mean, like the stuff I use in the house, Spinkle? Yeah. Yeah, it was just an odd name for this alien species. You call them spackle? Were you struggling with something there, Ness? That's an odd naming thing. Oh, well, okay. But I, it didn't bother me because I felt like it was, okay, because a spackle is the thing that fills in the holes, right? And they describe their their houses and like their their old communities as like coming up from the ground and like the spackle themselves are like from the ground covered in moss like they're like part of the world um and so i'm imagining that they probably came out of holes at when they first were encountered and then they were named by a bunch of misogynistic a-holes so sure um they probably called them something worse and it you know eventually became spackle what i because when i first started this as you know i try to read blind so i wasn't I don't even know. I never read the back of this book. I don't know what it says, but I wasn't sure where, where if we were on earth or not on earth or, you know, futures. I didn't know the genre. I love reading books that way. It's fun for me. Anyways, we got yep. to Spackle and I was like, and I was trying to think of like derogatory ethnic words that like it could be, you know, branching out of because I was trying to think if they were humanoid. And then when I realized, oh, we're not on earth, this is not humanoid. These are not, you know, a bad word for this particular group of people that we have here on earth it made it more interesting but you now the, but also like they had words in one of their houses which was interesting too so the spackle kind of goes into one of the other themes which is it has to do with knowledge right because the spackle knew how to live there they they have their own way of living and then these colonists come in and they're like oh we're better and we're gonna kill you all and it's very confusing as to why like were they not able to live in harmony is it just you're here and we're going to take your land or was there an actual threat 
which will that just sounds like the history of humans we kill off everything that isn't human right you know neanderthals they they're they were not are technically we're, i think we're three percent neanderthal because there was some interbreeding but for the most part we probably killed them off and we killed off other humanoidish creatures that had evolved along with us because that's that's who we are we're, we're a colonizing group of you know racists rawr <laughs> yay humans it's just you see it all the time everywhere whenever two races or two different human um, groups encounter each other one of them has to dominate the other eventually yeah yeah it's it's sad it's it's a pretty bleak picture of the of the future well of the human race itself and i think we've just read too many things about colonization and how ugly it is another theme that we have is kind of going along with knowledge and but then the opposite direction is information overload and i want to talk about that and with knowledge kind of together a, a subtle thing that they did in the movie is they had todd eating apples multiple times as he learns things and i couldn't help but think of like the tree of knowledge you know and like who has the knowledge and who doesn't and who's being tempted away and who isn't and all of that stuff for sure uh symbolism but also um you know as he he has a certain amount of knowledge and viola has a different kind of knowledge and i felt like both knowledges are important, but for different reasons. Like Todd can survive in a different way than Viola can. She knows more technical stuff. I would kind of put it on like the practical versus the theoretical. Okay. Uh, it, you know, he they have a good conversation about that where she's like, yeah, we're going to colonize this and you should have already done this. And he's like, you have no idea what it's like to try and survive. You know, you've, you've had everything prepackaged and the actual thing, like having to hunt a thing is really messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, it looks good on paper. You're going to show up and make a farm and put in a monorail or whatever you're going to do. <laughs> and uh, the, the realistic practical applications is sometimes you just need to not die this winter or, you know, rainy season or whatever it is. So, yeah, I, I, I liked her little bag of tricks. She's got this technology stuff that just blows his freaking mind. Um, I know, like one of them, it's basically a, a flat little lighter. And I was thinking, you know, if you're a future person, you could probably, you don't need like the block that you have when you have limited space, but it's a fire starter, yeah. you know, and, and but it shows, you know, the, the vast difference between them two, because he actually knows how to build a fire. That is a hard skill to learn. Yes. Yes. I've watched Survivor. That's a very difficult skill. <laughs> Takes people a long time. <laughs> You might like naked and afraid. That's even better. <laughs> no. It's really hard not to talk about these themes with talking about the movie as well as the book, but I guess we'll we'll kind of go through a little bit. Because there's the movie is so different and there's a lot to say about what's going on. Okay. We have the obvious theme of well, I, I mentioned it before, information overload, which you know, Todd is just being constantly inundated, which was the impetus for Patrick Ness to write this book he was talking about how you know teenagers and and people are growing up in this world where they're just saturated by information and overstimulation and i thought that was it's hard to pick out what's good and what isn't you know when you have all that information going on it's just an impossible thing to figure out you know what's the stuff that's really important and what's noise yep so yeah that's that's a great way of putting it I think he did a really good job of indicating that and take like I love when speculative fiction takes a modern day problem or issue and then takes it to a logical slash illogical extreme 
to point at it and to, to really draw our attention to what's going on. So, okay, we also, of course, have <laughs> manhood, adulthood, coming of age, and... So let's talk about gender essentialism. Um, so diseases usually don't work on just one gender. I think it was sort of an interesting choice, if a not scientific one, but Todd's idea of manhood is such an odd one because it's not the contradiction between, or the difference between him and, and femininity, it's him and being an adult. And he has no other language for that. And that adulthood isn't manhood. It isn't toxic masculinity. And that's something that he has to learn that killing, which is the toxic masculinity thing is not what adulthood is. Adulthood is having empathy and compassion and understanding nuance. Right. So his whole idea of, well, I'm going to be a man and this is such a thing for him, but what that means, and especially when it comes to our culture right now, what it means to be a man and an adult and just a functioning human is really uh, an interesting play. So yeah, first off, I was like, there are no trans people here. Okay, sure. Uh, sure. I believe it. Not really, but okay. So there's that. That was, yes, a disease only hitting. Okay. But fine. Once we're going to buy that premise and like live in this world, uh, the, some of the stuff that came from that is very believable because it is like, oh, of course the people who have no privacy would resent the people that do, whether or not they are men or women. I feel like the gender at this point doesn't matter. It's group A and group B. Group A has no privacy. Group B has all privacy and is able to, you know, keep secrets except you're going to have trauma you're going to have strife right you're going to have potentially violence not necessarily we've seen in those other settlements that people found a way to make it work but those other settlements hildy's settlement seems pretty cool far branch is like oh she's married she's happy like there's men and women they're intermingling and stuff but then we also have this other settlement which names i can't remember it's where the doctor is where women are just completely they're just used as breeders they they live in dormitories they have no rights nobody will even talk to viola and then at one point when he's traveling down the river he passes through some other settlements and there's like crazy people who like refuse to wear clothes or like do all these other things and there's like cannibals and stuff so like this is like a fucked up world for sure and i i think again like getting away from what the noise is or, or and not and getting away from the gender you have a built-in us versus them an automatic us versus them you cannot escape and it's completely arbitrary you don't choose it it doesn't you know it just happens to you and that in that way leads madness because anytime you have an us versus them you're going to have a power differential and you're going to have strife and that's that's also hooray humans <laughs> well that's why i like their book relationship between todd and viola so much more is that you know he has these preconceptions of women because this is the only thing that the men have shown him and then when it actually comes to him dealing with the practical side of him dealing with a, an actual girl i loved how the book was just they're so much better as friends and teammates you know when they can get beyond okay i can't hear her her my noise is bothering her and there's nothing I can do about it there's nothing she can do about it and we have to settle into these differences you know she's a really great character has a, a fantastic arc in the novel and there's this beautiful moment where at one point he realizes he can quote unquote 
read her. He can quote unquote hear her yeah. because he's now picking up on body language and using empathy to try to figure out what's happening in her brain as opposed to relying on her brain just spilling out its thoughts all at all times. And that's that is really fascinating. Developmentally, this is the age when that would happen too. Mm -hmm. You know, as humans, when you reach sort of teenagehood, you're, you're learning abstract logic instead of concrete thinking. You're starting to learn how to have more empathy. And, you know, children do have it. And then some children are very exceptional with empathy, but this is generally something that you learn as a teenager. You learn about, okay, what if I'm in that position? Mm -hmm. From a YA novel, it's a great lesson. From a, just a book by itself, it's a great lesson. Yeah, no, I really liked what they were doing with that. And I liked also, I mean, we kind of touched on it too, but the coming of age is very arbitrary. He's like counting down the days and it's really important. You know, birthdays are important. My daughter will tell you, you don't officially turn your age until you blow out your candles. This is like, there are rules here. But at some point it becomes less arbitrary. At some point you're like, oh yeah, it was my birthday, but it's just a day on the calendar. It And he even loses track throughout the course of the book. And then he can't keep track and how long and whatever. And I love that when he becomes the man, he has no idea what his actual date is. Right. And Viola's like, it doesn't matter. You could have already been that age. Like those numbers are just arbitrary. Time is freaking arbitrary. And also the label of man versus not man is kind of arbitrary at this point. So yeah, I, I love that. I think that that works on a, on a couple different levels there that Ness is kind of pointing at what we, poking at the idea of what we think is so important. We cling to these things and they mean nothing. Well, I, I kind of do like towards the end when he's having his confrontations with, you know, Aaron and, and the rest. And he's like, okay, I, I am now a man or he isn't trying to be one. He just is. He is the person who can get things done finally. Yeah without killing Aaron, which is nice. It's nice that yeah. he didn't do the thing that they all said, oh, you have to do this. Although he did kill, he killed a spackle. A spackle. So, yeah, and that's dismissed completely. Yeah, okay. But they're not human, so it doesn't matter. As I was reading it, I was like, oh, okay, there's this thing that's going to happen when he's 13 that they won't tell him about. They're all, you know, closing it off from him and stuff. And I was like, do they, are there spackles still out there? Is that what it is? They're going to take a raiding party out and go kill a spackle, you know, something killing. I figured it would be some kind of killing thing. Um, so he does kill a spackle in not for good reasons in in the book it is very clear that it is not self-defense they come upon this spackle who's like basically making himself dinner he's got some fish going and he's like hanging out by his campfire and todd is like really upset by all the past things and all the past times where he couldn't quote unquote be a man where aaron hit like the very first thing that happened in this book is the dog takes a shit and aaron hits him in the face like that's literally how this book opens up right so like Okay, so he, he's being hit, he's all these things, he's confused, he's on the run now, he's protecting her, blah, 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 blah. they've been attacked by Davy. they've been attacked by Aaron multiple times, and he just, he can't bring himself to, like, finish it, you know, and to do the actual killing, and now here they, they're, they're like, now they stumble into the spackle, and so he just unleashes all that, and he goes after her, and Viola's like, oh my god, this, this thing was afraid of you, this is fucked up, and he has that regret, and so... I, this is very worrisome to me because I'm like, are we, are we told, is the lesson here that you have to have a regret before you can become 
a man slash an adult. Like you have to have fucked up in some huge colossal way so that your empathy and your feelings of regret have a place to live. Or is it that like, this is like a self-fulfilling prophecy that you can't become this on this hero's journey until you've spilt this but i don't know man like why why did he have for me this was a lot more about colonialism is that you don't have good reasons to have violence you have a lot of made-up stuff that just goes into part of that prejudice so for me the lesson was a lot more on colonialism as, as far as todd becoming like a better person this is him having to learn oh no this is not what it takes to be the better person violence isn't the answer i mean sometimes so just, violence is the answer though can i i Okay. Yes. Yes. Sometimes self-defense is absolutely cool, but this wasn't self-defense. This wasn't. No. Were you frustrated with his lack of ability to kill earlier though? No. Oh, okay. I'm a psychopath apparently because I was like, <laughs> I pretty early. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was. Well, a was the thing about Viola? She's like, just kill the motherfucker. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. Thank you, Viola. <laughs> like kill Aaron what he's he's trying to kill you multiple times like you know at some point just and I okay yes listeners so there's a lot of I've never morality and, and dualism I mean, that I don't like right because I've never killed a man let's be clear but sure <laughs> that. but I'm, but I feel like I could get pushed to that point, especially if like my daughter's life is in danger or something like I, I have made room in my heart to accept that I could become that person if I needed to be. Maybe, maybe I should not be saying this on a microphone, but there it is. Um, so this is a pretty universal thing that you're allowed to have self-defense. Yes. Yeah. And we will use that defense in the future. <laughs> um, and so as, as I just, but they're making such a big thing about it that it feels like if Todd had killed Aaron, that it would have been like this betrayal and like this bad thing. And at that point, when we're in the waterfall and Aaron has survived like three or four times and he's literally he's bitten off and he's like the Terminator. Seriously. At that point, there should not be any, you should just kill Aaron. Like there shouldn't be any hesitation. And Todd still hesitates. So it's Viola who does the killing and she was raising that's it. That's not, yeah, that's, that, that's an easy out mm -hmm. that you're not doing the killing, but you're having somebody else do the killing for you. Right. That's not a better moral choice. Not really. Uh, and so I don't. You know, speaking of her shadow and bone thing, you know, just because you're not doing the thing, but you're making somebody else do the thing doesn't make it better. Right. Right. I mean, you're still doing things. You're just doing it from back here. I, yeah, you're using a different tool. You're using another human as your tool. Right. And so I just, I, it's uncomfortable to me that we, we put so much emphasis on kill. You should, you, it, once you become a man and kill, become an adult to kill, 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 kill. And he's like, oh, but I just can't, I just can't. And we're like reading this book and we're supposed to be like, that's right, Todd, you can't because you're a good person. You're a good person. That's why you can't kill. Even in self-defense, even when freaking Manchi gets broken in half, you can't kill. You can't kill. You're such a good person. And Viola's like, oh, whatever. I'll stag a bitch in the neck. Off you go. Right. Thank you, Viola. You're still a good person. And honestly, I'm a little disappointed in Todd. And maybe that is internal massage. I don't know what that is, but it it's there. I was really ready for him. And I and the, but I didn't want to be like step up and kill. 
because I because I feel like the next part of that sentence is step it and kill and be a man. But that's not what I want him to do. I don't want him to be a man through violence, but I still want him to kill the motherfucker. What I don't like is that everything is set up as a dual choice. You have you know this one, the bad one, or you have the good one, or just everything is just one of two options. I would have loved to see Todd come up with you know creative option number five. Well, and he that the author doesn't present that you know you could do something outside of this box that you have of you know choice one or choice two, and that's it. Well, he kind of does because like he he ties Davy up. Okay, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to make it so. And then at one point, like he he you know the the horse takes off and is dragging Davy away, right? You know, so it got rid of Davy that way. You know, okay, great. We know Davy's going to come back. We know Davy's alive. And okay. Um, you know, he tricks Aaron into the, the place with the crocodile things and he does the, you know, whatever. But I, hmm, no. To me, that's not any better than directly killing somebody. No. You know, if you spook a horse and you're like, oh, well, you know, that killed him. Woohoo. Or that's not any different than killing him yourself. That is killing him yourself. You're just using another tool. Or took him away because he didn't mean for the horse yeah. to kill David. He just wanted him to go away. It's basically like, uh procrast- getting dragged by a horse is hard to survive uh, david's gonna be fine i i feel like it's just yeah. it's like procrastination you're like i'm not ready to kill i'm not ready to kill i haven't reached that point in my hero's journey you know and then but then he does i don't know so yeah it's it's well it also subtle. speaks to the very awkwardness of the title yes that is one hell of an awkward title the knife of never letting go and because he you know at some point he's like i'm never gonna let go of this knife and then the knife gets knocked out of his hand <laughs> it happened like five times i was like okay i appreciate that they made it chaos walking for the movie because it it works out it's a beautiful line without you know a filter basically you know whatever a man is just chaos walking and i i kind of like that like a human a person is just chaos. we're all just freaking chaos right and and it's civilization and it's shame of you know people knowing our bad thoughts and like that's one of the reasons we don't do the bad things is we don't want to be cut off from civilization and from our society so it it works and otherwise we would all just be you know random chaotic animals so i i really liked the change in the title should we uh talk about like one of the big things about the book the one that we've been putting off sure the one that made you cry i mean we've kind of already touched on it but aaron kills the dog graphically horribly the dog cries and questions and is like Todd, 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 right before he dies. Yeah, which is and it's like the dog is seeing the betrayal and can't really comprehend it because it's a dog and all it understands is loyalty. Yeah, and that's like that's that's the hardest part to me. And I question this. You know, is this being an emotionally manipulative scene or is this like a genuinely screwed up scene that we are allowed to cry at? It was a hard scene to read and earlier the dog had been hit by by matthew and by other you know things and aaron had been mean to the dog and so i was kind of like i'd already had the fear oh god oh god is something bad gonna happen to the dog and then when we got to that point i was like no is something bad gonna happen no and then of course it did and i was very upset and had to put the book down and go away and cry in another room and have my eight-year-old come give me cuddles and tell me it was gonna be okay My emotional support child here. <laughs> uh, uh, as a backstory, I do love that you had to change the end to call of the wild for her to make it a little bit kinder. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So 
background. So I've referenced this on, on Facebook. I was like, oh my God, the dog in the book I just read died and I'm really mad about it. And people were like sharing their like own experiences and somebody referenced Call of the Wild, which I have read to my daughter when she was like four or five. She was really little and but she wanted me to. And so I read it and she was fine for the whole book until the very end. Um, and I basically just added the line that, you know, Buck and the, the she-wolf had puppies and lived happily ever after <laughs> because I wanted to. And years later, asking her about that book, she's like, oh, yeah, you know, Buck. And he pulled the, the sled that was full of all of the, you know, flour or whatever. And also he had puppies. And I was like, that's that's your takeaway. OK, <laughs> sure. Speaking of revisionist history. Sure, for sure. Well, little, that's what Sherman. Plus it was the end of the book. So, you know, I'm just going to remember the end. But yeah, no, this was very, this was hard. And, you know, from a detached sort of standpoint, I can be like, well, of course, you're going to have to like put these things up, these, these hurdles for the hero. You know, you're going to have to have a miscommunication. You're going to have to have somebody getting lost. You're going to have to have, you know, encounters with the lesser bosses before you get to the big boss fight at the end. You're going to have to have like maybe a side quest. And of course, you're going to like lose somebody along the way to make emotionally impactful to ratchet up the tension to prove that Aaron really is capable of doing horrible things so that you really want him to die and like all of these things right you know it's it, in horror movies the the villain kills more than just one person to to remind it to show us that they're a bad guy like that's why bad guys do bad things in books and tv shows to tell us that they are the bad guy so that we know who to root for blah blah, blah. it makes perfect sense but emotionally it was scarring and awful and I didn't like it and I texted you yes and I, I kind of laughed back at you because I knew it was going to happen. I didn't say anything. Well, I am glad you didn't say anything, even though I kind of wish I'd known. But I'm, but I am glad that I got to to experience the shock. You got to experience it as I experienced it because I went in completely blind when I. It, it was it was the YA novel at the time. I just heard the title. I was like, okay, I'll read it. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what I was getting into when I read it. And then the dog and this is something that people talk about grief um, because grief can be extremely complicated. And when someone like a parent dies and you have complicated feelings towards that parent, you know, grief isn't straightforward. But when it comes to things like animals, you know, all you have with Angie is this pure loyalty. And he was an irritating little dog sometimes, but he was also a sweetheart. He was super loyal. You really feel for him. And so there's a pureness to that relationship that you don't have unless it's usually with an animal because it is so simple and that grief comes across very clearly without any ambiguity yep and even with talking manchi when it makes it worse and so i am going to dip into the movie a little bit it pissed me off to no end that the animals didn't talk because one manchi's turned into like kind of a, a what's it like a little benji dog which he wasn't and he doesn't talk. You have no relationship with him. And so when he dies, it's just like, well, that happened. Yeah, the emotion was not there. I, okay, I have conflicting feelings. Yes, for the emotional weight of the death of Manchi, Manchi needed to have talked and had more of a relationship with Todd. However, talking animals can be like the line between well done and really dumb is really is really hard to hit and this movie had some good special effects and some not so good special effects and i feel like they would have made it dumb and i am glad that we didn't have a dumb dog we didn't have 
because like who would the voice actor be? I mean, I just it would have and like would the mouth have taught like moved like would it just would there have been a cl- I don't I don't know. And I like yes, it well, they, he makes a point of it like when Manchi first sees the girl and he barks, I that's what he hears. His noise is just like a bark. And so there's this difference between his mental communication and his vocal communication. Yes. I think I well, I don't have faith in the filmmakers. Right. I mean, basically, so I would not, I didn't want them to, I didn't, I'm glad that we didn't see them try to have a talking dog that would give us feelings. No, I am disappointed that that didn't happen because it loses a lot from the world, but it's because the filmmakers did a really poor job. Regardless, it wasn't there. (laughs) And there were other choices the filmmakers made that, that I feel like we're probably also going to disagree on. Okay, so let's talk about the movie. Let's talk about this movie. It is. It was a mess. It was a god-awful mess. One of the main things that I liked about the book was Todd's voice and his first-person narration. And you've taken quibble with that a bit in how Patrick Nista deals with it. But the fact that we, first of all, we, we get an interior monologue from Todd, which sadly, every now and then he channels Peter Parker a bit and it's hard to not but it, it happens okay um but also we see scenes that he's not in like the perspective changes and we get side characters points of view and we see things that he wasn't present for and i feel like it really detracts from the sense of urgency and from your audience identification because you're seeing a bigger picture and i found that one of the that to me was one of the biggest disappointments was that it wasn't just first person, just Todd, that perspective yeah, shift. There, there are a massive amount of changes. And so some of it is just, what do you do in a, a shorter storyline? I, I will say, I love that the cast, that they had the cast of actors and actresses. Yeah, the acting was great. It Yeah, so the cast is great. It's just the story. I think there were something like six total writers and that's not a good sign. Yeah, and it went through some rewrites and some delays and stuff and it it, you can tell it's pretty messy. Yeah, they had a hard time uh, finding a director. So originally, I think they had Doug Davidson, who would did The Departed and How to Train Your Dragon. Roger Robert Zemeckis was hired at one point to be the filmmaker, and that sort of came out. There were some really interesting screenwriters. So Charlie Kaufman wrote a draft at one point, hmm. and he is a really fascinating writer, but I can't imagine what this film would have been like with his writing style. It's just so odd. Yeah. And and like I said, part of the, the big change of this perspective. And so because of that, we get things like we see the spaceship landing and Viola's, you know, uh, crew dying early on. And we see viola doing other things and we get stuff from the the mayor and we get you know a different kind of backstory we get more into these other side characters and i just i found that really disappointing we don't need to see the tension between the mayor and aaron like that's not necessary that doesn't add anything every time we shifted away from todd it was detracting from the story and i was confused at what story that ultimately we were trying to tell which was upsetting Primarily because in the book, we have a lot of character growth because we're seeing Todd in the first chapter and we're seeing Todd in the second chapter and then we're seeing Todd at the end. And we can watch Todd evolve and grow, not just, you know, his relationship with Manchi, his relationship with Viola and his relationship with himself, his relationship with the other men, you know, all of that stuff. 
we don't really see that same sort of character growth in this movie. It felt like Viola was extremely flat. Like she was just sort of there, but she didn't have her own arc. No, no, she was definitely not an arc. I mean, she definitely moved the plot along and Daisy Ridley is, is you know, very good at bugging out her eyes and looking afraid. Sure. I actually really liked that she had this like bigger sister vibe going with Todd and like, you know, that I I kind of liked it. She wasn't there for the romance at all, which was good because it could have very easily been done di- differently and poorly. I was kind of disappointed that there was a romantic element in the film. There, there Well, there wasn't. Well, he, he would have thoughts about kissing her. And that's one of the things I liked about the book is that he doesn't understand these relationships except in these weird little patches of what other people have. He doesn't really have a concept of what a relationship is like. And so he never really tries to pursue anything. It's just, well, she's a girl. This is weird. Right. I Okay. So the movie kind of had it both ways. They had him being like a total innocent and not thinking of her in any kind of other way other than just another person when he strips down completely naked with no shame to go into the lake to kill something to eat. But at the same time, he does have this daydream about kissing her. And so I feel like it's almost like you said, like, where did he get that idea? Where did the kiss come from? It's not like any modeled behavior that he has seen, except, yes, he has parents who probably kiss. Ben and Killian are probably into each other because that's what parents do. They love each other. And gasp, gasp. It's true. They kiss in front of their kids. So it didn't actually bother me. It was fine that he would like start to have feelings for somebody and like that would be his thing i like the fact that she shuts it down i like the fact that he doesn't push it i like the fact that he's a teenager going through these changes he's a young person he's full of hormones it made perfect sense to me and i love the fact that he's just like i said stripped down naked and just jumped in that water to get their lunch that made me so uncomfortable the way like it's just because canonically he's supposed to be around 14 or 15 it's like i know i don't want to see you know, a young, naked person. Okay, canonically is not a word you get to use because this is an adaptation and they've changed things. So canonically in this movie, he is not 13. He is older. She is older. They've aged them up. So that's a very unfair comparison. And Tom Holland can strip down anytime he wants because he's not a 13-year-old. He plays younger people, but he's not a child. He's a a man. He And despite his, like, be a man, I'm not a man, be a man, etc. Thankfully, they didn't have as much emphasis in the movie about you're so young and you're an innocent and blah, blah, blah. They didn't have that. They also didn't have the whole thing with killing because we see Todd kill, he kills a horse. Early on, the horse is damaged, the horse is in pain, Todd does a mercy kill. And that's just what he does. So I I don't wanna hurt, you know, I don't wanna rain on your jam if you like Tom Holland and that's cool. It's just for me, he was a little too young and so, it was uncomfortable to watch. And I was just like, oh, no, no, this is this is not something I want to see just because he is playing such a young character. And it doesn't matter if he's not, the actor is a young character. For me, it, it was troublesome. Okay, but the character in the movie isn't a child. So it's, it's fine if you're not into Tom Holland and it's fine if that was an uncomfortable scene, but let, let's be clear for people who haven't seen, it was not gratuitous nudity and he was not playing the role of a child so it's an adult playing the role of an adult who in soft it been, focus it's you know it been happier if they showed just like torso up i mean we didn't get 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple little thoughts here and there. It, it's just I, I wish it had been a little bit more of a soft focus, and that's why I mean I don't want to ruin your job. If you like Tom Holland, that's cool. For me, it was an uncomfortable thing just because of the storyline. Oh, okay. I thought it made perfect sense in terms of the story, but getting past that, like I said, Tom also or Todd, Tom, Todd, Todd also doesn't have the whole young man, I'm not a man, I'm a boy, blah, 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 I've never killed anything concept, because like I said, we see him kill the horse, it's a mercy kill, he's totally prepared to kill the spackle that they come across and only stops because Viola stops him, which is an interesting change from from the from the book. Of course, he is more self defense with the spackle violence in the movie, because they are trying to avoid the spackles and then he gets pulled and grabbed by the spackle. And of course he fights back. So I would have actually been more okay with him killing the spackle in the movie than in the, you know, I, but. Yeah, that was a change that bothered me. Um, so while I like the casting, I, I was a little troubled by, uh, I, I'm not gonna say his last name correctly, David Oyelowo, uh, who played Aaron, mm-hmm. just because he's, we have white characters who are playing villains, but it's kind of a thing that like the darkest skinned person is also like the most evil that happens a lot. And it's a kind of racism in filming that we still have. I like that we have Cynthia Avero who played Hildy and we have a couple other characters. It's just that kind of bothered me of really, we got to have the insane preacher be black and all the really good characters are white. Uh, See, I, I'm going to disagree with you because I feel like that actor did a great job and I because there were enough other people of color sprinkled around it wasn't the only black person is a bad person specifically like you mentioned Hildy but they're not even the only ones um there's there's even there's black people in the town there's other Prentice men who are black and and of darker rate you know I I don't know, Hispanic origins, whatever. Also, our our actual main villain, because in the book, yes, Aaron is the main villain and the mayor is like the behind the scenes, you know, powerful, really scary villain who's not so cartoony because he's so much more realistic and so much more like snake in the grass dangerous. But Aaron is like the in your face, I'm going to kill you right now villain. But in the movie, the main villain is the mayor and Aaron is just kind of there to occasionally be scary and to do a couple things. Um, yeah, he's there as a menacing figure. And the mayor is white. Uh, so, I know. I just, for me, it was it was just the thing of, oh, uh, really, could we cast that a little bit differently? But see, then you're saying it, that it he just, shouldn't have gotten that role because he's Black, and that's not fair. No, I'm saying that there's a tendency when they do casting, and you'll see this, uh, was it Bridgerton does this too, where you have a lot of Black actors, but the darkest skin actor is like the worst most unrepented character that you can have and so there is a colorism that's going on that bothers me and so i'm happy with him as a character i hope he gets lots of roles i want him to be successful just as you know a person i just felt like it was unfortunate not entirely blind casting well as I wasn't there for the casting or the casting calls, I can't speak to whether it was blind or not blind. And also have not having not watched Bridgerton, I think we just found a television show that you watch that I don't. So, no, I'm just using a- that as, as an example. It, it just colorism still tends to be an issue. Okay, so moving moving on, the special effect of the noise, the clouds 
the color clouds that surround them, their heads, and that you can see sometimes from a distance when there's a lot of them. What did you think of that quote unquote special effect? I love that scene when Aaron and the mayor are talking and Aaron is like, his thoughts are fiery and you have, uh, you know, the mayor and they're, they're kind of this weird blue circle where he's able to hide them a little bit better. I thought the thought projections were ridiculous. Like you could pretend you can, you can make other people hallucinate that there's a person there and then it sort of drifts into this weird cloud that was so badly done. But I like the idea of like trying to show a visual noise. Yeah, it's an almost impossible task to do what the book does in a visual medium, which is interesting. It's like kudos for you for trying, but wow, wow, wow. Um, and yeah, the the projection of actual things like, you know, the, it's a snake that's going to scare the horse instead of just the word snake. And it's it's the person that's standing there. And then this person is walking and standing. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I had a whole Star Wars moment of like, he's not really there. There's no footprint, you know, the footprints on the, whatever. Okay. Um, so sure, I, that... It didn't bother me that much when he was just walking around and it was blue and like you would see it from from a on. But when they upped the ante, so to speak, to make it into these projections, I found it, it, it highlighted, it just drew attention to how silly it was, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you just had like the little thought things, it would have been fine, but they went too far. Yeah, for sure. And, and that was... And then we have, we, so then that was an addition because we didn't do that in the book at all. We're not astrally projecting thoughts, you know, images into people. But the other thing that they went, which isn't really in the book, is that like, some people can control it and therefore control other people and, and hide theirs more. And that was really interesting too. And also I felt like unnecessary. So like they kept adding these things into the, into the movie that weren't necessary. And they took things out that I kind of felt were valid and important. This is why, I, you know, if it were if it were a different set of filmmakers, I would have liked to see the animals talk, but I don't trust them because they'll mess it up. So it is my distrust that makes me go that I'm glad that's not there, but that's not because it shouldn't be there. It's because these filmmakers don't know how to do it well. Right. And I think that's what I said earlier. I think we're on the same page in terms of that. Uh, I did like, and I've already mentioned that they aged them up. I did like their alien discussion. I did like that the world never gets dark. Let's see. Here. I wish Daisy Ridley had a better expressions because it's usually just bug-eyed look. Yeah, she she didn't have a whole lot to work with here, unfortunately. Which is and so her character was, you know, really lost in the film. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's disappointing because the book was an adrenaline thing. It was a page turner. You're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, Aaron just died. Like, oh my God, they're running and running and running and the pace is so fast and you're like exhausted and you're reading it. And the movie was like, and now we're going to build a shelter and talk about our feelings. And now we're going to go over here and do this. And I and like, oh my God. Um, the book felt faster than it than it was. And the movie felt longer than it was. I mean, to be fair, I had to pause it a couple times to deal with like life stuff, but it, it definitely felt like it had been drawn. Yeah, for a 500-page book, it goes by really quickly. Yeah, and for uh, was it a 110-minute movie, something like that? It felt every single minute of that. Yeah, I mean, and I there are some things that I like. I like the idea of this sci-fi western, you know, this frontier thing. I like that they're making points about colonialism. You know, I think those are really valid. I like 
some of the lessons, but I just felt like the themes of the book were really important and the movie didn't really touch on them. It was just more about this action-y thing to get from point A to point B. You know, we never we never really touch on the, the, the horrible misogyny that's in the book, in the movie. In the movie, we don't really touch on it. We have this one line, oh, don't hide your thoughts like a woman. Okay, but in the book, misogyny is a, a pretty major component of what's going on. It's almost like another character. And again, it's the world feels so much smaller in some ways because every town is so very different, but it does a good job of it, of just showing how humans react quite differently to the same stimulus. Yeah. So that was cool. But again, it's, it's, there's so much lost in translation. Yep. Uh, I like this line. I read this in a review. It tries to cover as much ground as a season of a television show while pacing itself like a trailer. <laughs> well said. Okay, so of course I have some some trivia. First little bit of Star Trek trivia is that Star Trek is not Star Wars. So Daisy Ridley is in Star Wars, not Star Trek. And there is a difference. And one franchise is inherently better than the other, but we like to pretend that they're equal and everybody deserves to enjoy their fandom. No, I'm just kidding. Everybody does to enjoy, everybody does in, deserve to enjoy their fandom. And one is one is better. Okay, <clears throat> um, Demian Bicher, or Bicker, I'm not sure, who is Ben, was asked at one point in talks with J.J. Abrams uh, to be in Star Trek II but he could not do it, which is disappointing that J.J. Abrams Star Trek too. So that's disappointing. Would have been kind of cool to see him there. Speaking of uh, actors of color, it's a pretty awesome actor there. Mexican actor, I think. Davy, <laughs> this isn't actually Star Trek, but it is interesting. Davy in this movie is played by Nick Jonas, a Jonas brother. <laughs> a solo artist now, Nick Jonas, has an album called Spaceman. So I'm, I'm making a connection here, but it's, it's flawed. Okay, our only real other Star Trek connection is that fans are trying to get Tom Holland cast as Pavel Chekhov in the next Star Trek film, because as you probably know, the Kelvin universe's Chekhov was played by Anton Yelchin, who died uh, not too terribly long ago. And so there's a hole in the cast. And I, for one, would love to see Tom Holland play Pavel Chekhov in another Star Trek film. So that's that's it. It's a little light on the Star Trek. Um, a lot of Star Wars, obviously, because Daisy Ridley. Um, but yes. Okay. Are you ready for final thoughts? Um, I have a quote, and it doesn't quite fit with the movie, but I love it how it, it sort of relates. Uh, the, the line goes, she was an open book. He was illiterate. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really go with this movie or book. No, but, but it kind of does. You're talking about you know, being able to, to read thoughts and still not understanding anything. Mm. So I just like that line, even though it doesn't fit with this. It's still a cool line. Who said it? It was just something that I, and it's author unattributed. Quick post-production note here, according to the internet, that quote is actually by Maya Angelou. And now you know. So Jennifer, was this book worth your time? Was this movie worth your time? This is maybe going to be controversial of me, but I actually did not like this book all that much. Hmm. Because I start, when I rewrite it, I was like, huh, this is actually pretty interesting. I like the writing. Why did I not like this book? 
the first time I read it, which is, you know, shortly after it came out. And it was towards the end, I went, yeah, this is why I got so exhausted with this book is, you know, Aaron never goddamn dies. He gets his face bitten off and he's still going. And I got tired of all the chasing. And after a while, like the towns felt very stereotypical of this is what this town does with misogyny. And this is what this town does without having misogyny. And this is what this is toxic masculinity town. And the chasing just got to me. And again, I, I really question that scene with Manchi is that being emotionally manipulative because when you have a character die and it was so tragic, I also kind of go, you're killing a dog. You're killing a dog, you asshole. Are you, are you doing it just to make your readers feel all the feels, which we can attest that Kalia did feel all the feels when it came to the dog? Are you doing it just because it's easy to make your readers cry doing that? So that's one of those things I, I really question about this writer. Uh, the movie, totally not worth your time. Okay. <laughs> Here are my final thoughts. Book. Some of the twists were predictable, but I'm okay with that because it lets the reader be a tiny bit ahead of Todd while still staying firmly in his story. And I liked his story. The writing is great, I thought. The atmosphere is great. The tone is great. The pacing was fast and it didn't feel as long as it was. The tension was very, very high. It started to get into the realm of unbelievable, but I mean, it is a sci-fi Western novel. So, I mean, a little bit of unbelievability is kind of to be expected. I freaking cried multiple times over that damn dog over the course of many days after finishing this book. And, you know, sometimes that's okay. It's okay to have an emotional response to something. It's actually kind of nice to know that I can still have an emotional response things like the death of something a character because I read a lot and I watch a lot and sometimes I wonder if I'm like become too jaded so there we go I was super invested I was very upset at the end that this was a cliffhanger I knew that it was the beginning of a trilogy but a lot of times the first installment of a trilogy has a good ending and then they or, or like there's a couple things left unanswered but like you it ends and then it's usually narratively speaking, the second one that ends on the cliffhanger or where intentions are really at their worst, blah, blah, blah. Star Wars, yes, I'm looking at you. But this did not do that. And it ends on such a cliffhanger. I was very upset at the very end. And I've gone ahead and requested the second book of this stupid trilogy from the library. And I'm going to read it. And I don't really have time in my life to read books that are not for my book review blog or book club or this podcast. And I'm going to make time to read this second book. So I think the book exactly did what it was supposed to do. And yeah, so I, it, yeah, the book's totally worth your time. I think it brings up a lot of interesting ideas. I think it plays with them in an interesting way. Super down for it and glad I read it. As for the movie, I mean, sure. If you want to be able to, you've seen every Tom Holland or Daisy Ridley movie, then you should totally watch this movie. Uh, I, they're not making any more of this series. This movie hit a lot of production hiccups. It was delayed by two years into getting released. And I, from everything I've read online, they're not even going to bother to make another one, which makes sense because the way they ended this movie is much more of an ending and they changed it so dramatically. Having, again, not read any of the rest of the series, I'm not sure how they could come back or if they could or whatever. But anyways, uh, it was well acted. It was well shot. It was just sort of, ugh. I think I might have liked it had I not read the book. At least I would have been okay with spending my time, but I had read the book, so I didn't really like it that much. And I would rather reread this book again than rewatch this movie, except for maybe that naked crocodile hunting scene that Jennifer hated so much that I so much enjoyed. And those are my final thoughts. 
Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Sound off. We would love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to hear if you've read this book. Did you read it when it came out all those years ago? It's nice that it's a YA fantasy sci-fi novel that is not about a girl chosen one who's not like other girls with her brown hair and her, oh no, she's so clumsy. I love Todd. I'm rooting for Todd. I love his awkwardness in the book. I actually kind of liked the fact that he was so awkward. In the movie, he was way more proficient with that knife. The first thing we see him do is kill something with a knife. Uh, so yeah, character, character change. But I love book Todd. I'm rooting for book Todd. This is the kind of YA interesting thorny ideas that I can get behind. So yes, send us an email, pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. Pop into our monthly pop-in at this end of this month of July on Monday. We will be discussing YA. And of course, we'll this will be fair game because this episode will have dropped by then. And also, you know, it's totally YA. So there we go. Yay. Yay. Yay for YA. Yay for YA. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yay for YA. Yep, that's that's about it. So come back in two weeks and listen to Leah and I talk about high fidelity. And in the meantime, you can listen to Jennifer and I talk about Shadow and Bone, the Netflix show. Every Wednesday, a new episode will drop into your feeds. And in a week from now, you can listen to the next episode of Ghost Thropology. Let me look at my calendar. Oh, this one's coming out. I can't remember what the next episode of Ghost Thropology is. But I can tell you that the one that was last week had to do with the devil in the dance hall, and it's totally worth a listen. So there you go. Yeah, it's a good podcast. I, I totally endorse it as you know, just a listener and not as part of you know the KMMA media production line. It is a lot of fun to listen to. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you can find out more information about it as well as our other upcoming podcast exciting news posted when it is able to be posted at K mmamedia.com. Thanks so much, Jennifer. All right. Thank you. It was a fun episode. I think it's time to uh, let go. Let go. Let go of your knife. I held this pen most of the time. And, and the pen is mightier than the knife? Pen is mightier than the knife. Sometimes. Depends on if you're fighting Aaron or just writing a book review. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>